Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Melanated Faith. Now, we have a lot to talk about, but mainly you guys have heard what's going on in the news right now um, with Ahmaud Arbery and also Breonna Taylor. And so we just want to say, can I live? And we got to talk about that. We have got to talk about what's going on in the community right now. So, Catherine, let's let's dive into this. Yeah, so I just want to say, just kind of give some basic facts for those who maybe who have not heard, um, which, you know, that's fine. I know we're in a pandemic and all of us are just, you know, trying to live. Um, but in the news recently, the two killings of um, black people. So Ahmad Arbery was 25 years old, um, was out for a run in in his neighborhood or in his community and essentially was tracked down by um, two white men, um, the McMichaels, a father and son pair um, who trapped him and then um, the the son shot Ahmad um, and he was killed. And this happened in February. I think because of what's happening with the pandemic kind of had sort of not received as much attention. Um, And basically what we know now is that seems like the first prosecutor, I think prosecutor, I think her name was Jackie Johnson, pretty much botched the case. Um, The father, Greg McMichael, had worked in the district attorney's office. And so that might have unduly influenced her decision to prosecute or these men. Um, But essentially, GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, has stepped in. And honestly, within like 48 hours of them stepping in, the, the, the Greg McMichael and his son were arrested for the killing of, for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And so now um, a special prosecutor has been assigned to the case. And so now we're just going to wait for her to present the evidence to the grand jury. Um, And then Breonna Taylor um, was a young black woman EMT who has, you know, is an essential worker. And, you know, I read a story with her mom that was like so heartbreaking because her mom was like, I've been just really worried about her catching coronavirus because she's an EMT. So I've just been on her on her about washing her hands. But essentially what happened is uh, Brianna and her boyfriend were sleeping um, in the middle of the night. The police entered their apartment without announcing themselves. Um, And Brianna's boyfriend, thinking that it was an intruder, he's a licensed gun owner trying to protect himself and his um, girlfriend shot who he thought was just an intruder um, turned out to be the police and Brianna was shot eight times and she was killed in her own home while she was sleeping. Um, And so this also too, I think has gotten maybe less attention one because of the pandemic, but then two, which we're going to probably dive into this more later. I think because Brianna was a black woman, um, the sort of gender bias when it comes to covering these sort of um, extrajudicial or extrajudicial killings by law enforcement and or just white um, people. Um, and so we just kind of wanted to make sure that we kind of were on the same page about what's happening. Um, and then I think also too just the like the larger context and you know if this is your first sort of big one of these Um, killings that you've paid attention to. Um, This is just kind of like, 
I think why you see black people reacting the way that it's just because it just never stops. Right. Like in the last couple of years, we can name Alton Sterling. We can name Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin. Like there's like a list of Rakia Boyd, Sandra Bland, um, you know, Renisha McBride. Like there's just this ongoing list just in this last couple of years, you know, in our lifetime. But then I just think, you know, of you know, I think Ahmaud Arbery was essentially lynched. I mean, these, the, the McMichaels are not law enforcement. I think even if they had a legitimate thing of like, he could have been breaking in, call the police and allow the police handle it. And I think we see a direct tie between that act of them kind of taking the law into their own hands. And then the lynchings that we think about, um, in the early part of the 19th and 20th century in this country. And then just the work of Ida B. Wells and those like her to bring attention um, to the idea that whenever a, a white person had even just a suspicion, not even evidence that a black person committed a crime, they could essentially drag them into the town square and, and kill them um, without any consequence. And so um, I think what you're seeing, I think in the reaction is just this, for lack of a better word, of exhaustion, like of when, when will, will we stop having to make these hashtags, you know, and when will there be some sort of groundswell of like policy reform and change that, yeah, sees the full humanity of black people and does not assume because you're black criminality. So I just want to ask, you know, for you, Faith, like, what was your first response when you saw these stories? How are you feeling? Mm. I mean, to be honest, I feel very um, exhausted. I feel like we um, we really don't get the chance to truly live a regular, quote unquote, regular life without our skin being used as a weapon against us. The fact that people are trying to excuse Ahmad Arbery's death for simply going into a little uh, a con- home under construction and looking around, something a lot of people have done, I've done before, and saying that that's the reason that he should be killed is just outrageous to me. And the people that are making an excuse for that are wrong. And I mean, frankly, I feel like you're kind of evil. Like if you're if you are making such an excuse for the reason why somebody should die and it's it's easy and to be so careless with your words um, and to justify it. I mean, it just reminds me of those people who, you know, you would decide the town would decide, okay, we want to deal with this person, drag a black person out of jail, mob, a whole mob lynch a person. And then people are just watching and then they go back to their normal lives. They go to church on Sunday and everything is fine. And I think everybody is tired of that. We're calling out that behavior, that behavior where you can completely um, take someone's life and then go back to life as normal like nothing ever happened. Like, yes, these people are so inferior to us that we get to define what happens. We get to define what that looks like for them to live or if they get to die. And so with Brianna, I mean, I think a host of different emotions came up because as a black woman, you know, you see a lot of widespread outrage about Ahmad, which rightfully so. It's a terrible case. And there's a video. But with Brianna, there is no video. And and it just shows that there's a lot of devaluing of black women's lives. And um, 
And her case just really displays that because there's not as much of a widespread outrage for Brianna, especially because it has to do with the police as it is with um, Ahmad. And I think we have to ask ourselves, like, why can't the police be at fault? Why can't the police have made a mistake? They shot into the home. And even um, Tasha was talking about this yesterday about how, you know, bullets didn't just go into Brianna's apartment. It went into other apartments as well. And they're finding out like new evidence that it's highly likely that one of the officers got shot did not actually get shot by um, her boyfriend who was doing like a, you know, like a warning shot to protect himself. He got shot by one of the um, many bullets that were flying between the officers. And so it's just like, you know, we have to really ask ourselves some questions like why do we even have to say that her boyfriend didn't even have a police record why do we have to say that he was a licensed gun owner for people to believe that what happened was wrong um this young man is now being faced with assault and um i believe it's like first degree murder or manslaughter which is terrible like how are you trying to put a like attempted murder on him like he just like he was trying to protect his home and so it just goes to show that like stand your ground laws are not for us you know what i mean like it's just it's really unfortunate that these are the things that people are having to deal with and um yeah so it's the charges are first degree assault and attempted murder that's what they're charging him with And I think to your point, I mean, like the whole thing of like why we titled this Can I Live? Like, I think that in the the idea that, yeah, like why do we have to say that he's a licensed gun owner? Because I think the assumption is, again, and this this you need to like examine these underlying assumptions because like I think oftentimes the assumption is okay a white gun owner of course you're like licensed and you're legally whatever and then it's like black we associate with criminality like oh like what did he do he must have caused that and like the under like if that is your assumption the underlying assumption is like racist like why is it that when it happens with white people, like it would automatically be like we he would get a white man would get the benefit of the doubt. And I think that is, you know, I think that's the kind of to me, the like the underlying thing of like just I think normal life things that those of European heritage get to do without even a second thought, like as an African-American, I'm doing like 30 extra steps, right? Like, so it's like in the event that I, this is why I personally would never own a gun because I think the assumption would be that I'm just going to use it and shoot it willy-nilly, not that I have it for protection and that I'd be justified in shooting an intruder or whatever. Um, And so I think, you know, what we're asking or I think would be helpful to just dealing with this is like understanding like, why are you asking all these extra questions, right? Like the sort of wait for all the facts crowd. And it's like, and I will say as someone uh, like a lawyer and like, and by training, I understand that facts matter, like, and that you need to know that information. But I think that to me, the underlying impulse oftentimes of the wait for all the facts crowd is that you are wanting to wait for all the facts because this person is black and you assume that they did something to cause their death, right? right? Like, I don't hear wait for all the facts when, I mean, there was an incident in, I think it was Minneapolis where a white woman was killed by, I think the man was Southeast Asian. Don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, he was a person of color and he shot her and like immediately this man was arrested. He like went to jail for like manslaughter and like the totally different standard. And it just was like, 
there's no, like the assumption that he would have any sort of justification to kill this white woman. Um, he was wrong. I'm not like defending his actions, but I think this idea, like you don't hear the wait for all the facts, the fact that this police officer was immediately charged and convicted. I mean, we as African-American people, um, and even, you know, in Texas, like Latinos who have been killed by the police, like don't get that sort of immediate, our cries for justice are often they're overlooked and heard. Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that that's an important point of like, yeah, or the whole, even with Ahmad, like, oh, he was looking around the house. I'm like, how many people, I mean, they're building so many houses in my neighborhood as my neighborhood gentrifies. Like, we're all talking about like, oh, look at this design. Look at that. Like, it's not, yeah, that's not something worth killing over you know no it's not it's it's just white supremacy at work you don't belong here and we're going to show you why you don't so um so civil rights attorney attorney benjamin crump he's representing both families said in the washington post when asked about brianna they're killing our sisters just like they're killing our brothers but for whatever reason we have not given our sisters the same attention that we have given Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Stephon Clark, Terrence Kutcher, Alton Sterling, Flando Castile, Eric Garner, Laquan McDonald, etc. Why do you think we do not give attention to the killings of black women in the same way that we do black men? Um, I think it's because I think this just goes back to the idea. I think black women are invisible. You have two strikes against you. You're black and you're a woman. And so I think even to the extent like black men are still men and sort of still have that sort of male privilege. I think also to like a couple of things, I think tying back to some things we covered in one of the episodes this season about sort of the underlying assumptions about black women of being like aggressive mm-hmm. or liars or unstable. And so I think also too, like we have not done enough work of like examining how those assumptions directly tie to this like perceived over-criminalization of black women. And I just think, I mean, if even just like Sandra Bland, right, as an example, um, this idea, the assumption that she was being aggressive because she was asking questions about like why she was pulled over or whatever, and this led to her being incarcerated. And then even just the idea that black women are liars, right, or unstable. Like when she Sandra Bland filled out the forms at the county jail, she said that she had a history of depression and had attempted suicide in the past. That was ignored, right? And she was left in the cell and they didn't follow procedure. And so I think, you know, I think it's important to talk about the sort of gender bias and how we cover these things. And I think a lot of it is related to assumptions about black women. I think we're often invisible. I think that just generally, I think the reason why black women don't get the same level of attention is just because we're often, I mean, this is just one of many areas in which black women um, are often overlooked. And I think this is why things like the hashtag say her name are so important. And I think that's why, um, I think the idea also too, that with Brianna, there's not a video. So like, why do we always require a video to to act or be moved to mm-hmm. inaction. Um, and I, and this is not to diminish violence against black men. Cause I think both are horrible, equally horrible. Um, but I, I would want to talk about why oftentimes black women just in the ways our labor is ignored. Um, I think this idea of over criminalization is oftentimes um, ignored when it comes to black women as well. Yeah. And I also think that it's interesting that, 
um, for black women to be ignored this much, yet black women are the one leading these movements. Black women are the ones that created Black Lives Matter. Black women are often the ones on the forefront, on, on the lines, advocating and doing advocacy. And yet when it comes down to when their lives are lost, there's a lot more silence and a lot more questioning. And it's really unfortunate because black women really are the heart and the soul of the black community. And we know that everybody in the black community knows that black women bring so much to the community. And um, I think that it's so unfortunate for the lives of black women to be diminished, to be erased and invisible and to be not seen as as important or valuable to discuss. And I think that even with like, you know, Brianna's case, one thing, like I said to the people on Instagram that follow me on Instagram is, listen, if there is no video, you're going to walk for a mod, you're going to run from whatever you're going to do. But when it comes to Brianna, are you still going to share her case when there's no video, when there's no trauma porn for you to consume? Are you really going to share it? You know, because I didn't even watch the video of Ahmad's death because I'm getting to the point where I can't re- I can't watch these videos anymore. It's just, it's, yeah. it's traumatic and it just... It just, Same. Yeah. I can't. I don't watch. It just <laughs> makes me. It makes me so mad and upset. And so, um, I I feel like with Brianna's case, there's no video. Nobody wore any body cams. They didn't have their cameras on, or I don't even know if they, you know, are supposed to have them there. But there's no evidence, and yet people are questioning because the police are involved. That's like a major problem, you know. And I think it's we don't have to. Why are we asking questions? I think that if it was a white family, that some white families would have had a much different response in terms of how they were reached out to, how um, the police were held accountable, and what that looked like, and the action would have been more swift. And I think that is the issue, and that is one of the main things that we are trying to call into accountability, how justice has not been for us, created for us. And the need for us to have to advocate for um, accountability and um, to be seen as human and visible in ways that those in the white community have not had to do. I think even related to the the thing that's like interesting and I, I encourage and I'll put it in the show notes, um, the interview with Brianna's mom, right? The Her boyfriend calls her mom and says, like, I think someone is breaking into the door. The fact that the police did not even come to the mother and tell them, tell her that her daughter was killed. I mean, like to me also too, the lack of humanity for the victims of this, oh, these yeah. types of crimes. I, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know that I would say definitively, okay, like a white family, they would be arrested. But I think at least at a minimum, if this sort of thing happened with a white family, they would have been so apologetic. They would have come to the mother and been like, we are, we killed your daughter. We're so sorry. It was an accident, blah, blah, blah. And the fact that this woman was left in a hospital for hours, that she's having to like get on national news to get any sort of acknowledgement of wrongdoing, again, is the diminishing of the humanity of black people, specifically black mothers. And I just think like these women are joining clubs, no, a club that nobody wants to be a part of, right? And I just think generally it's so horrible anytime a mother has to bury her own child. But just think about the level of care and attention typically given to mothers 
when these sorts of things happen. And just to think, put yourself in the shoes of this woman who literally gets this call that, you know, I think my daughter, your daughter has been shot and no one can meet her and tell her what happened to her daughter. Like that's disrespectful. And I just feel like this just goes to the idea of like what you mentioned before. It's like, we often treat black women as if they are invisible. Like we're happy to have your labor, right? Like we're happy to have you create hashtags, black lives matter. We're happy to, I mean, I just think even with the civil rights movement, right? Like the catalyst for the Montgomery bus boycotts, Rosa Parks and Joanne Robinson. Nobody talks about Joanne Robinson. We all talk about Martin Luther King Jr. And this is not to diminish him. This is not a diminishment of him. This is just a comment on like the invisible labor black women are happy to do out of love and obligation and care and community. But that goes unseen. Like it's costly and it goes unseen. And I just think that, yeah, like give Brianna the same energy you're giving Ahmad. It's is is all I'm saying. Like, not that you diminish what we're putting you're putting out for a mod or that you put out for Train Von Martin. Um, but I just, yeah, whenever you say, you know, Trayvon Martin, that you would speak also Sandra Bland and Rakia Boyd and Renisha McBride and uh Brianna Taylor, because it's the same and it has, I think, the same effects mm-hmm. on community. And I think it's rooted in the same, you know, both racism and also sexism and and gender-based violence. Um, but yeah, I just my thing with this is just keep the same energy. <laughs> like yeah. is, to sum it up. Um, okay, so Faith, if you were going to give tips for like white bridge builders who want to be a part of the solution, who are seeing these things, hearing these things and like are upset and want to respond, what what kind of tips or suggestions would you give them? I always encourage white bridge builders to educate themselves. And I say this to white bridge builders, to, but also to everyone. I mean, it doesn't matter what color you are. There's a lot of people who don't know the true history of this country, who don't know um, why things are the way that they are for the black community, who don't understand systemic racism and all of the factors that contribute to this, right? Like there's a lot of factors that contribute to why things are the way that they are. There's a lot of factors that contribute to why the black community is upset and agitated, you know, with these continuous killings. If you read a little and you educate yourself some more, it'll really help you understand and it will look less like, oh, they just are always, you know, they're always complaining about something. They're always mad. Why are they mad? But I mean, in the words of Solange, you have a right to be mad. So um, I encourage bridge builders, specifically white people, to definitely educate yourself. So read, read books through Be the Bridge. We have a We Recommend page um, with lots of books and resources and a Goodreads account where people can look at books that we recommend for um, others to um, get. Also, I encourage white bridge builders to start like doing like a little diversity audit of your life. Like, who are you following on social media? Who are you? Um, who are your friends? Like your real friends? You know, I'm not talking about like, oh yeah, I'm friends with so and so, but like they're not in your picture log at all. Like they're nowhere to be found in your text messages. Like you really need to evaluate like who are your friends in your life that do not look like you? Where are they? Do you have? Can any? I just? Can I just say this about friendship? And I think we will get more into this in season two, but just as a kind of 
tidbit before we get deeper into that. I would say you are not friends with a person of color if you've never been in each other's homes and you've never talked about race. I will just say as a minimum, because I think a lot of the typical, the, the thing is to be like, oh, I know people of color are there in my extended circle. But I will say, I don't know about you, Faith, but I will say for my friends that are white or just of different races generally or different ethnicities because that's a part of who a person is and I think part of being a friend is like knowing someone and feeling fully known by them and so if I don't know anything about your culture your ethnicity your background and we just have casual conversations at work about you know survivor and (laughs) 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 how to get away with murder like we're not friends we're like associates which is fine but like when you do your diversity audit don't be counting me as one of your friends because we're not (laughs) yeah I mean I I really feel like also like what's what kind of communication do you like are you um at with people um just like really personal stuff like do you have their phone number like or are you just do you just have their Instagram you know what I'm saying like do you you really need to ask yourself like who are your true friends and I and I would dare to say that a lot of people have associates more than they really have friends and I think in the age of the internet it makes everybody feel really comfortable like you really know people um and so it's easier to be like oh yeah 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 we're friends we're friends but are you really is the question and so I kind of I kind of for me I'm like you know do you spend time with have you spent time with that person like have you how have you interacted with that person things like that to really kind of you know make a determination of if they're really your friend or if they're just somebody that you've been associated with and then the other thing is is look at the books that you're reading the people that you're following on social media um is it all written by like white european people like do you have people of other ethnicities do you have other viewpoints do you follow people who differ from you i like to follow people who have different opinions than me i don't put myself in a whole silos of my own people who act like me think like me believe like me i want to have different thoughts and opinions because um it's important to be challenged and i think if you are surrounding yourself with the same type of people, the same people who believe and think the same, then of course it's going to be hard for you to accept somebody that's saying something completely opposite of what you already know or what you've always known because those are the only people that you surround yourself with. If your you know, Facebook feed is all the same people, all saying the same things, all agreeing with you, well... I mean, you might want to switch that up a little bit. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. um, And it's going to require you to get uncomfortable. That's the thing. Like, I've had some really encouraging conversations with some of my white friends this week um, who are like, you know what? Like, this is really challenging me. And and I know that this is going to change my life because I'm uncomfortable, but this is this is important and I need to. And that's really encouraging to me. And I think that, you know, sometimes I can be losing hope for some of the people that I know or have grown up with because, you know, the minute that you're speaking out and you're talking about race and you're talking about racism, you are in a way going to be, you know, ostracized in some evangelical faith communities. And so you're just kind of prepared for that. But to see people that are trying to lean into the conversation and that actually want to be uncomfortable, it's encouraging. But that's the thing. You're going to be uncomfortable. And it's not like a everybody gets a trophy kind of a thing. You know, thanks for running for a mod. Here's your trophy. You're not racist. Like, that's not it. You have to actually do the deep work because we all have internal biases that we have to address. And this is going to unearth some things and maybe you will find out that maybe you are racist and you didn't think that you were and now you need to repent and start this journey of you know reconciliation and bridge building in a deeper way 
And you need to evaluate what church you're going to. And you need to evaluate what who your pastor is. That's important too. So I'm going to just give like two things. I think Faith did a really great job. But um, I would say lament. So I think that's not as comfortable for majority evangelical culture. Like the tendency is to see this see what's happening and like want to rush in and do something and ask your friends of color all these questions and like we have to fix this right now right and I think I would say this is a long deep work I think like white supremacy and racism is the type of sin that only comes out by prayer and fasting and I think for white bridge builders creating space for that and like sometimes I think the often bombardment of questions that comes after these types of incidences to people of color um, is emotionally draining. And so I would say one you know, encouragement would just be to take a pause and to say, if you need to say something, to reach out and say, you know, I'm praying for you. I'm praying about this. And like, and that way you're like acknowledging that it's happening. You're acknowledging that it would be difficult Um it's difficult on people of color. But then I think you're also creating space for just lament of like weeping. And I think, you know, the Psalms are really great um, as a really great resource uh, for how to do that. Because I think that that idea, I mean, it's very uncomfortable for the American church. We've had just like all this, you know, you've had all this prosperity. I think, you know, I've, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It's very clear to me that while a lot of our churches don't preach the prosperity gospel, we are functioning from a prosperity gospel mindset. And so this idea that you could ever call out to God and say, you know, why is this happening? I'm upset about this. Like, we just, we don't have a practice of that. Um, and so I would say one thing I think encouragement I would give to white bridge builders is try to develop that as a spiritual discipline of just like lamenting before rushing to like, let me be the savior. And I will also say relatedly, um, this has been generational work and the idea that you have this one idea that no one has thought about and you're going to rush in and fix this um, is also a function of like overestimating probably, you know, the term often used as white saviorism, right? Like um, is overestimating your own ability. So I would say creating space for that. And then um, my other suggestion would be, I think oftentimes um white bridge builders, I think you need to lean into the, it being uncomfortable, like, and being challenged, um, with this. And I will, and relatedly, even if you have, like, you've done racist things or you realize that maybe some underlying ideology of like white supremacy, that does not make you a bad person, right? Like we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like, what are you going to do once you realize you've had that issue? Are you going to repent? Are you going to make change? Are you going to make, um, try to repair or, or, or demonstrate that you've turned from that evil do way? That 180. And so I think, yeah, like, have you done a 180? Cause I think oftentimes part of what keeps to me, a, a lot of white bridge builders from fully engaging in the work are really doing the work that needs to be done is they do not want to admit that they are, have had racist ideas or have engaged in white supremacy. Um, because they're very like, as we all are, we're all invested in this idea of like, Oh, I'm perfect. And I've never had any issues and I've always gotten this. I just have been quiet. Um, and I think the quicker that you admit, you know, it's kind of like that thing with sin, like the quicker you bring it to God and like show him 
is how you heal yourself. Like pretending you don't have cancer does not mean you don't have cancer. It just means you're allowing the cancer to fester and grow and you're moving closer and closer to death. And so I would say, um, yeah, to what Faith said of like saying, yeah, I had this idea, but I've repented and I'm, I'm turning from that. Um, so I have kind of a follow-up question for you, Faith. What are some like absolute don'ts? Like for sure, do not say this <laughs> when things like this happen. Let's wait for the facts. Oh, are you sure? Are you sure? I mean, let's wait to see what the police have to say about it. Hey, don't worry. I'm praying for you. Um, You know, hopefully this is just kind of like a one-off situation. I've actually never heard of things like this happening before. Um, Definitely have had somebody um, say something of that sort to me before, which I was like, huh. Um, (laughs) And any other comment that is something to the extent of... um, brushing it off, acting like it didn't happen, treating it like a one-off situation, saying, let's just wait to hear from things, saying something like, why do black people always get so mad and upset? Um, saying, um, other like kind of just like connotations of, um, you know, trying to explain away or tell people how they should feel like you shouldn't, you should feel like X, Y, and Z, or you shouldn't be mad, or why are you upset? Um, You know, give it to God in prayer, you know, don't worry about it, God will be the vindicator, you know, just things like that, which not that we don't believe that God will be the vindicator, but we have to address that white supremacy is evil, and has been killing people, and people want to brush it away, and act like it's not what it is. And then we're just supposed to be okay with it and we're supposed to suck it up and we're supposed to be quiet. And I think like people need to understand that that is so um, that is just not helpful to us. It's not helpful to us to tell us how to grieve, to tell us how to mourn, to tell us how to deal with our pain. Um, when we are being vulnerable enough to open up our mouths and say we're tired and we're sick of it and having to explain to you why we're tired and we're sick of it. Um, so I think that's the, the big thing. Yeah, I would say the Bible says lament with those who lament, mourn with those who mourn. And so yes. even if you don't understand it, the fact that we are in Christian community with each other, don't tell me you don't understand it. Just lament with me in this empathy Empathy. and I think also too like this idea of like gaslighting right like the idea that I a black person would not recognize racism or white supremacy when I've been having to negotiate it all my life and it might be something that is totally foreign to you um, just because you're in the majority and this is how things are and so I think that is a little yeah it's gaslighting it's diminishing and then I heard this white pastor give a really great analogy about this like one time is like Think about it like in the context of like marriage or relationship. If your friend comes to you and says that they're upset about X, Y, and Z, do you think you're repairing the friendship or doing what's beneficial to your marriage by being like, I don't really think that happened the way you think it happened. And like, it's like he, and he gave the example. He's like, if I said that to my wife um, in an argument, it's just getting worse. Like I'm not actually It's not getting better. Getting but be- he's like it's not getting better. And so, you know, and he was talking about so he was like encouraging his congregation like when these incidents happen, listen, like mourn, have empathy um for people in the same way you would with any kind of like intimate relationship. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say is don't bring up black on black crime. Okay? Oh. Because black people are upset about crime in their neighborhood too. Just because cuz this again goes to this idea that what happens in these neighborhoods is invisible, right? So it's like you have no idea the activism that goes on 
people's favorite example is Chicago. Um, I actually have a friend, a black woman who leads uh, a nonprofit dealing with gun violence, community violence. They do a lot of work in Chicago around gun violence among African-Americans, one. So one, when I hear you say, what about black on black on crime? It's like, oh, first of all, the only time you ever are interested in black on black crime or Chicago is to negate my comments about Ahmaud Arbery or Trayvon Martin. So one, you're showing your hand there. Two, it just also says that you generally are unaware of what's going on and what kinds of activism go on in black communities. Because guarantee you, in any black community, if there is a black church, there is a black pastor that has stood on the street corner and yelled about young people pulling up their pants and stop shooting each yes. other. Yes, I'm just saying. And the other thing you just brought to my remembrance, because this actually happened with somebody do not, and I mean do not, and I mean it so seriously, bring up the fact about abortion and how there's so many black babies that are all being aborted. When I am trying to mourn about the killing of a black man, because your advocacy does not mean much to me whenever you are pro-birth and that little baby becomes a black man or a black woman, and now you're silent and you're asking me questions about why I believe something wrong happened to them or you don't care to advocate, or you don't care to speak up. Like, that is one of the most, to me, disrespectful comments anybody can ever say, because it's like, wow, your point is not really being made here, because that child grows up. And if you are not able to hear what I'm saying and listen with empathy and agree that this is wrong and evil, and you're using the abortions of black children to validate your point, you have missed everything. You've missed the entire point, and you're really not advocating for black lives. They're just a talking piece in point. I think also, yeah, and I think that goes to, yeah, This that is a deflection tool. You don't want to engage with what is actually being said. You want to deflect to this other topic or agenda. And I just will say that that's not an effective communication tool. Like you a part of sort of like just generally active listening is like listening to the thing people are saying to you and being present in that conversation Um, because and then again, the thing is like, okay, even with that, like abortion and being pro birth, like, yeah, like the idea that you do not. Um, engage in when the person becomes a fully grown black person but also too the only time that you're really that are you really that focused on the higher abortion rates within the black community any other time than when it's time to talk about police killings or extrajudicial murder because again if you're not like again why do you feel the need to deflect like you're trying to make this just goes back to like you're making excuses to diminish my feelings yeah and so it's just not a good way to be a friend to someone I think it's just And I just have to say, all these statistics y'all are bringing up, black on black crime, abortion, black people are about 13 to 14 percent of the whole population, okay, of the United States. So take that into account when you're talking about a lot of these things. There's not as many of us as people make it out to be. And you need to really compare those statistics because most often, all the time, when it comes to all these stats, majority culture still is higher than our community. That's all I have to yeah. say. Yeah. And I think, again, going back to this idea, if you've been in a black church, I would say most black churches. They talk about it. The, they talk about it. They have resources for, you know, and so just again, like. I mean, are you really interested in that as a problem or an issue or a challenge and really working towards solutions for that? Or are you just interested in a talking point? And oftentimes what I find is 
you're interested in a talking point. You, again, are failing to recognize the humanity of black people. You're looking to pathologize us as some sort of criminal, irresponsible member of society who deserves... That's what I hear. You're yeah. saying like you you as a black person lack the same morals as me as a white person. So likely you are at fault in this situation. And yeah. Oh, last person, Candace Owens. Don't send me her page. Don't p- put her up as a reason back or response. No, no, no. I have seen so many people this week trying to refute Ahmad's death from a video that Candace Owens made and sharing it. And it is terrible. Terrible. She does not speak for us. Okay, that's all I have to say. I feel like we covered it. <sighs> Jesus. Y'all, listen, this is a heavy week. Clearly, you can tell we are fired up. We have some things to say. And I just want you all to know that this conversation is so important. Like, it's so important for us to talk about. And also, it's important for the church to talk about. So, Catherine, what are a few important things you think the church needs to know and why it's important for them to talk about this? Why should the church speak into this issue? Um, I would say a couple things. I think if you're trying to make disciples, I think that this is a part of what your disciples, well, maybe some of you, maybe not in your congregation. Well, actually, I'll take that back. This is a, a discipleship issue that affects all of us. If you're in a predominantly white church, to be like, oh, well, this doesn't affect my members, it actually does, right? So the idea of like white supremacy unchallenged in a predominantly white church, these sort of underlying assumptions about the cr- criminality of, of black people. I mean, I'm just going to go out on a limb here just because I know that the South is, there are high levels of re- religiosity in the South. The McMichaels attend somebody's church. So if that pastor <laughs> does not speak to these issues, how are you discipling your people, one? Two, I think the idea that this is just a black person's problem or if I don't pastor these specific, like, pastor minorities, these issues don't affect me. Again, it actually does. I think, you know, the idea that, like, the idea of, like, and I think there are other things, right? Like, there's racism. There's this, like, idea of American exceptionalism, American freedom, individuality. All of these, these ideas have to be challenged and we have to talk about them as a church. But I also think, to me, and I think I've heard Tasha say this, is, like, the solution, you know, or the mo- people most equipped to deal with this issue is the church, right? Like, because we have a theology of lament. We have a theology of justice. We have a theology... Um, of seeing kind of the beloved community. And so this idea that like, yeah, like the people most equipped with the tools and resources to deal with this issue and get to the root causes of all of these things are just going to be silent, suggests that we're going to struggle with this problem for a long time. And I think, you know, just historically, the civil rights movement was led from the church. It was led by African-American Christians. And so I do think that there like our churches have to be speaking to this. I would say this for the white and black church. I mean, I think so many, and I think now this sort of current Black Lives Matter movement, um, you don't see the involvement of the church as much. And I think a part of that is just has been a failure. Like um, for some black churches, you know, you've got middle-class members and you've gotten too comfortable and like you've forgotten sort of this, the prophetic justice tradition of the African-American church. And so- 
I think that it's important for churches to talk about it because this is an issue that is in the world and people, part of discipling is teaching people what does it mean to be a follower of Christ um, and to ignore people suffering, to ignore sort of the role that the church sometimes intentionally and sometimes unwittingly played in reinforcing sort of the sin of partiality, i.e. white supremacy, um, is a dereliction of duty. Like you're not forming full disciples because they, you haven't given them the tools to engage and understand, um, this issue. And I think that to the extent that you, your silence also speaks, I'll say that, like, if you don't speak on these issues, the people of color who maybe do attend your congregations, um, you're speaking loudly and clearly to them that this doesn't matter. Maybe they hear I don't matter um, because this issue that has, you know, as Faith talks about, dominated my whole week, my news feed, my Twitter feed, my Facebook feed. And I come to church on Sunday looking from a word of the Lord. Does God care about this? Does God care about me? Um, and to hear nothing, you're communicating something by your silence. And so I think um, people often think, oh, like, well, I haven't said anything. So, you know, you can't get mad at me. And it's like, well, your silence does speak. And I think, you know, like people often worry about like, am I saying the wrong thing? And it's like, to even just acknowledge like, hey, we know this happened last week and we are lamenting. We're grieving with the families of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and we want to pray for them. Mother's Day just happened um, that for the mothers that have gone through this horrible traumatic experience and their first Mother's Day without their children um, is, is something. And so I would just say... Yeah, as Tasha would say, I think the church is most equipped to speak into this, and it's unfortunate that we have abdicated our responsibility. Yeah, I think, too, like, to what you're saying and what many, like, leaders of faith have been saying, like Brenda Salter McNeil, Lisa Sharon Harper, who've been speaking into this for years, is this is a part of the church's responsibility. It is a part of recognizing the humanity of people, um, the image of God in people, and not diminishing that or overlooking that. And I think that is one of the most important calls to the church. One of my things when I when I talk to people of faith, it's like, evaluate yourself. Like, are you reflecting the heart of God and how you're responding and thinking about this? Do you truly love and see um us as your brothers and sisters in Christ? And if so, what causes you to bristle up to to feel frustrated or to feel like, I don't know if I can get with, agree with what they're saying. I don't know if I can believe what they're saying. Like, why is that? And if we truly are your brothers and sisters and your neighbors, why can't you lament with us? Why can't you listen in empathy? Why can't you sit with us? Why isn't the gospel message applying to racism in your church? Ask yourself that. Why doesn't the gospel message apply to racism? Yeah. Why haven't you heard that message communicated in your church as an important message for us to hear? Why is that? We have to ask ourselves that. Why has um, the theology that many of us have grown up listening to not included that message? You have to ask yourself that specifically when you're in majority um, culture evangelical spaces, because this work is a part of the black community. It's been a part of the black church. It's been a part of the of the message and of the um, the pursuit of freedom in the black church. And so I think that we have to ask ourselves, why 
isn't this a part of the gospel message? And what do we need to do to begin seeing that change happen in our communities and in our churches and in our church circles? Yeah. And I'll just say, just because I'm coming off a semester of just like straight New Testament classes, it's like striking to me how much of Paul's writing to the churches that he wrote his letters to, which is like over about half of the New Testament, is about what does it mean to be in a community, both Greek and Jew. And he is not ignoring people's ethnicity. So this idea that like, oh, you know, we just need to be colorblind and like, that's not an issue. Like, I that's not... I. That's not what Paul is saying, but I also think the fact that he gives so much attention to in Ephesians, in uh, Corinthians, in Thessalonians, and like of like guys as Christians, we are we should be. There's a oneness here, and and John, I think Tasha loves to quote that verse where we should be one as a father is one. Like, what does that truly mean to be unified? Um, and a, you know, in Acts, I love the story in Acts six where it's like, um. Jewish widows and and Greek widows are sort of uh, feeling, the Greek widows are feeling like they're not getting as much from the church offering as, as, as Jewish widows. And the response of the 12 disciples is to then elevate Greek um, leaders in the church to distribute to both Greek and um, Jewish widows so that people are able to, to have equity. And so I think that, you know, evaluating who is in leadership in your churches, like who are you empowering to speak into your life and to the life of the members of your church? Um, I think that's part of, you know, Faith mentioning a sort of a diversity audit. But I just think, I mean, if you just go through and you're like, oh, I don't know how to talk about this or how to preach this, I would just encourage just to sit down and read the New Testament. I mean, Luke spend so much time. It's like, was so fascinating to see how Luke kind of goes out of his way to demonstrate Jesus reaching out to Samaritans, to people who were not part of the Jewish community to say that this Jesus is for everybody. He came for all of us. And the idea that you're saying by your silence that the gospel does not speak to ethnic difference and and call us to a, a unity of church and body and mind and to care for others. I mean, to me, it's just like you're misreading right. the new, t- you're misreading scripture. You've totally removed. If you're saying the Bible has nothing to say about justice. I mean, I don't, what, what prophets are you reading? I mean, like Amos is just a screed <laughs> against injustice <laughs> and oppression. And so I don't think that, and to me, I, I fall on the more sort of conservative I theological or reading of scripture and like uh, from that perspective I don't see how you can say the bible has nothing to say about these issues I will say and so off the high horse seminary (laughs) like I just like spent a whole semester and we're just like reading 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 Romans like it's like in almost every letter to the church um and then to me um so faith um, we spend a lot of time kind of talking about what white bird builders can do. Um, I want to speak now to like just people of color, black people in particular who are suffering and who are tired. What is a word, um, that you would say to those and, in, in dealing with this and in, in dealing with these situations, a word of encouragement, of peace, of lament, what would you say? I would say to, um, I would say specifically to my black brothers and sisters, like, I see you and I see your frustration and your anguish and your pain and your fears. Um, I see it in the fears of 
black men who are are encountering overzealous, you know, white men like this video of this black man trying to, you know, get out of this neighborhood after making a delivery and he was um detained by an overzealous HOA member um trying to question whether he was stealing something. And as he drove away after talking and confirming with the owner of the house and them dealing with everything and he was able to, you know, quote unquote, get free and leave with his colleague. You could see the fear in his eyes and the pain in his face, feeling like maybe he could have died. And that look in his face has not left me. And it has reminded me of every single black person that I have talked to. I have heard and felt the grief um, from that audio clip um, that Brittany Packnett did talking about Brianna Taylor. And she was weeping and I've shared it with friends and we have all felt that same collective grief. And so I see you and I feel your weariness. I am there with you. And I want you to know that you have to take time for yourself. You have to get off social media. You have to unplug however you are able to and to know that your humanity is valuable, that there are people who will continue to fight, who will continue um, to call for people to be held accountable, who will not let up, who will continue to pursue justice and who believe in you, believe that your life is purposeful, meaningful and valuable and that you are here for a reason. And every burden, every stress, every weight, every pain just know that I am standing with you, that I see that and I am in this fight with you. There is nothing that any of us can do that can take away this this, um, this burden and this pain. But I know that as I seek God and I find myself praying and lamenting and reading the Psalms, that I know that if he did not leave us then, he's not leaving us now. And so I want to encourage you all to stay strong as much as you can. And strong, I mean, as in allowing yourself to be okay with not being okay. That's still strong too. And allowing yourself to cry. That's still strong too. Allowing yourself to feel disoriented. That's still strong too. Allowing yourself to process your trauma. That's still strong too. Allowing yourself to see a therapist and process what you're feeling. That is still strong too. And I love y'all. Yeah. I would just say, yeah, this idea that like you are a full person created in the image of God and we see you, but I think more importantly, God sees you. And he was so intentional in designing you and placing you in the place in which you live and the body in which you live in. And it is beautiful and it is valuable to him regardless of what this world says. And I know oftentimes what you hear is you are less than. But if I could just say, in Jesus, you are more than a conqueror. And to really, ooh, to believe that, um, if you hear nothing else, like this podcast is for you, that what you're feeling and seeing is valid. It's valid. Like the, it is happening. What you see, what you feel is happening. Um, and so I would just say, Stop arguing with people about your humanity because God has made it clear that you are created in his image. I hope that you have someone in your life that is affirming that you are created in the image of God. 
And so for anybody in your life that refuses to see that, I don't care if they were your fifth grade Sunday school teacher, eighth grade best friend, they, maybe they just don't fit anymore. And that's okay. Like it is strong to set boundaries with people. It's not something to celebrate. It's always sad when relationships fail or break down. Um, but I think, you know, when you're on an airplane and they say like, put your own life, your own mask on first and then help the person next to you. I think sometimes we feel such a burden to like advocate on behalf of our community that we rush to like try to put, you know, the air mask on someone else. And sweetie, you're suffocating. And I would just say, um, you're worth saving. Um, and I think that people that love you, I think one of the things as just of I've grown in this work, one of the things that um, someone helped, some sweet sister helped me recognize many years ago. And so I will pass this on um, is that people that love you see your humanity and recognizes this is hard and will give you a minute. If you need a minute to say, you know, I see and I know you have questions or you, I know you want to talk about this, but I'm just not in the place to do that right now. Can we come back later? Um, you're a full person with emotions. You're not a Wikipedia page. I think in 2020, in the age of Google, um, the resources are out there for those who want to find them. Be the bridge has honestly done a lot of the work for you. Just go to the resources page and you can send people to that. And then also too, if you use Be The Bridge resources, encourage your friends to donate to Be The Bridge um, so that they can continue to do the important work. But I just think of, you know, um, Eric Garner's daughter died in her 30s of a heart attack. And I just think there is a physical component, like the body does keep score. Like some of us are literally making ourselves Sick because we're not sleeping, we're not eating, um, and it's not healthy. And I think giving people time and space to do their own work and recognize that you're part of like a long chain of this, like our ancestors, despite what they tell you in the history books, our ancestors have been resisting white supremacy since they first stepped foot in this country in 1619. And so to think of yourself as one piece in the chain, right? And that, and I just think even for my like ancestors, my grandmother died, which is why I'm emotional. I started crying. Um, my grandmother died a few weeks ago. And in December, um, we went to the Neiman Marcus downtown, RIP to Neiman Marcus, and had like a Christmas brunch, just the women in our family. And my grandmother was 93 when she passed away. Um, and when she was my age, she could not eat in that restaurant. And the idea that here we are like in this restaurant celebrating, we're in our Christmas clothes and taking all these pictures and just what a moment that was for her to see her grandchildren being served in a place that she was not able to go when she was in her thirties. And so I think it's helpful to think about like there, despite how it feels, there has been progress. You are one in a long line of chain. Um, and I say, send some of these people with God, allow the Holy spirit to do his work, put them on your prayer list and send, I mean, I'm a big fan of saying go with God, like go with God. Cause and, and like, I just, to be so clear, there is not a single person on this earth that can carry the weight of the world that can change on a dime what's happening. Right. Only God can. And so I think w recognizing this is a deep spiritual work. 
um, and recognizing your own limitations. And, and I think this is why groups like Be The Bridge are important because you feel like you're a part of something collective. You're not fighting kind of on your own. There are people, as Faith said, still doing the work, even if you go to sleep, even if you turn it off. I have one of my best friends and mentors is like, I feel like I'm not called to that ministry. Like God has called me to raise my family, to go to work. And I think it's important and it should be done, but I'm not called to that. And she just leaves it at that. And I respect that. And I wish that like, yeah, it's okay to take a step back. That's a way of being strong is what I would say. So let the Holy Spirit work. You take care of your physical and mental health. Yeah, I think that's really important and powerful and how we're going to wrap up this episode um, with just, you know, this somber sense of peace, but also just emotion. And I think it's okay for us to, to be there and to feel that. I know for me, like, I typically don't feel like my emotions come until, like, I'm by myself and I'm quiet and my house is quiet and I feel the tears come. And so we want to thank you all for listening to this special episode that we have done. And it's all about asking the question, can I live? And if we mean something to you or any other black person person of color means something to you we need you to ask that question and for the black people we need you to to continue to do your best to take care of yourself because this is heavy stuff so i just you know we know that we have listeners of many different faith backgrounds um but i just felt in preparing for this like just really a burden um to maybe rather than our typical goopsis um, ending to just end on a word of prayer. Um, and so I'm going to pray for us. And yeah, as Faith said, thank you so much for entering into this really heavy conversation with us. Um, dear Heavenly Father, I just come to you right now, God, for my brothers and sisters who are tired who have been screaming and writing letters and calling legislators for with an intensity that feels like it has lasted for years and ages. Um, for a people who are tired, who look back at our history and say, how long, oh Lord? God, I thank you that you are a God that sees. Um, all of us, those that are broken, those that are trying to repair and rebuild rebuild and find a new way, God. Um, Father, I just thank you for your presence, God. I thank you for your intentionality in making Faith and I Black women, for giving us a heart um, for this podcast. God, I just pray, Father, that for those that are feeling burdened, God, that you would just be with them, that you would remind them that you are that they're your children and they're precious. God, I just pray that you would renew um, their strength, God, that you would, um, God, send forth the strength of ancestors who endured um, and resisted and remind them, God, of your goodness and your faithfulness through the generations, God. Um, Father, even when it doesn't feel good, and if the circumstances around us are bleak and the temptation of the devil would be um, your accursed people, we know that's not true, God. 
Um, We know that you love us, that you are a suffering God that is near the brokenhearted. And um, if anybody understands what the loss of a child is, you understand God. So I lift up Ahmaud Arbery's mother, and I lift up Breonna Taylor's mother, and I lift up all of the mothers who have lost their children to white supremacy, God. God, I just pray a comfort upon them, a peace, God. Father, I pray for those of us in the church that we would not let those deaths be in vain, God, Um, that you would allow the scales to fall from some eyes, God, that you would give us eyes to see the humanity and the ways in which we've engaged or propped up white supremacy, God. God, I pray for hearts of repentance, for feet uh, of action and hands and feet to get to work, to demolishing um, this demonic force that has sprouted um, not just in America. I mean, it's a global force, God. And I just pray, God, that you would... um, renew our hearts, that you would give us a renewed sense of what it means to be unified as the body of church, God. Um, Father, we don't speak condemnation. You, you talked in John about you didn't come to condemn the world, but to, to, to save it, God. Father, I just pray for against that spirit of condemnation and self-pity, God. I pray for that energy to be directed into um, solutions and repentance. And I, I pray for Zacchaeus' eyes, God, um, for those willing to go into high places and to see something they've never seen before and change their lives. Father, I just thank you um, for all the ways um, in which you're still good um, and still bless, even in the midst of just suffering, God. I just pray for hope, God. Um, would you renew our hope Would you help us fight back against hopelessness, Father? Um, God, that we would continue to be a people of hope. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, again, if you're new to this conversation, you're looking at the situation, um, in addition to all the great resources that are available on the Be The Bridge page and in the Be The Bridge Facebook group, please check out the show notes. We've compiled some resources and some action steps for both Brianna and Ahmad. Thanks for joining us, y'all. We'll catch you on season two.